You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Lord loves the righteous, cares for the stranger, sustains the orphan and widow. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I usually choose for us to read whichever lesson, apart from the gospel, is the shorter one. (laughs) And yet this morning, I assigned to Dear Bonnie a rather lengthy passage from the book of Ruth. You'll notice it is much longer than our epistle option for the mor- this morning, and that was very much intentional because I love the book of Ruth. It is one of my very favorite books in the entire Bible, and so anytime Ruth makes an appearance in our three-year lectionary cycle, I get excited, and I say, forget everything, read Ruth. Thus, this morning's decision. You may recall that I'm a big fan of what I call stories of grace, stories in which unconditional love provides a surprise twist ending, thereby making the narrative compelling and edifying. And Ruth is basically just a string of these stories of grace. It's only four chapters long, and here today we've read pretty much the entire first chapter, which centers upon a woman named, you guessed it, Naomi. In her youth, Naomi moves to a foreign state called Moab with her new husband. There they set up a life for themselves, living in a little cottage, the white picket fence. They have two sons. You've seen their Christmas card before. And their sons grow up and marry two lovely young women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. And everything in their lives seems to be going along swimmingly when everything changes and Naomi's husband dies, leaving her somewhat rudderless and the family has to readjust. And then if that were not enough, both of her sons die. And suddenly, after all of that story of her life, Naomi finds herself sitting in a room with her two daughters-in-law, trying to piece together what to do next. And she advises these young widows to go back to their homes, to reestablish themselves in their hometowns, and to try to find new suitors. There's still plenty of bloom on those roses, and they have a chance. Meanwhile, 
Naomi's plan is to return back to her home of origin, back in Judah, to leave Moab altogether in hopes that she will be able to piece together some kind of a new existence for herself back in her home territory. And when she tells her beloved daughters-in-law this news, that she's going to go all the way back to Judah, and that it only makes sense for them, given the prospect of their long and happy futures that are still very much an option for them, that they need to stay put, to go back and rebuild their lives, always cherishing the love and familial experience that they had, while at the same time moving on. And Orpah eventually says, you're right, I see that's the only thing that makes sense here. And Orpah leaves and goes back to her parents to reestablish herself in her little hometown. But Ruth, to everyone's surprise in this passage, throws practicality to the wind. She is heartbroken for her mother-in-law. And she says, when her mother-in-law pushes her to leave her for her own well-being and self-care, Ruth says this, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. Do you feel the grace? Do you see how unconditional love brings with it a surprise twist ending, so to speak? I experienced a modern-day version of these dynamics many years ago. On a Monday afternoon, about 12 years ago, in my first parish, I met one afternoon with a parishioner named Loretta, who apparently, quote, wanted to plan her funeral with me before she died. It was the first time that a parishioner had approached me along these lines. And I wondered at the time about the impetus for the request. It seemed odd to me. Now, I have since had many similar planning sessions, but they never tell you in seminary to expect these kinds of requests. So Loretta came into my office and proceeded to tell me a bit about her story, the central piece being that she had been diagnosed with cancer. When she, sudden, when she said this, it suddenly felt to me as though the reasoning behind our meeting all made sense. Everything came into focus. And it was especially touching, not just because I cared about her, but because she recounted how she had been engaged at the time of the diagnosis. And when the doctor told her the news of her condition, she was understandably quite devastated because she knew it meant that she could not marry the man she was engaged to, that that would be 
in her words, immensely selfish. The doctor, you see, had given her a maximum of three years to live. So she went home and she told her fiance that she could not marry him because soon she was going to die. She told him to go out and find someone else who he could live a long, happy life with. She explained how the next year of her life would be entirely defined by her experience of chemotherapy and how she would soon not have any hair on her head and that in three years she would be dead. So he needed to move on. And do you know what he said? He said, then I think we should get married sooner. And he took her hand in his and he said, if you are gone in three years, then they will be the best three years of my life. And they were married a few weeks later in the middle of her chemotherapy. Now Loretta's story came flooding back to me as I revisited the story of Ruth, and you can see why. Because of Ruth's underlying, undying commitment to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And then I came across a related article this week in The Atlantic from October 21st, and I think it drives home much of the point of our lesson this morning. This was the headline, Self-Care isn't the fix for late pandemic malaise. What we need is to take care of others. The writer, Jamil Zaki, goes on to say this. If years could be assigned a dominant feeling, i.e. 1929, despair, 2008, hope, 2021's moniker might be exhaustion. As the coronavirus pandemic rumbles through its 20th month, many of us feel like we are running a race we didn't set up for, and it's getting longer every mile we run. With this slog has come a renewed focus on mental health. During the pandemic, universities have poured money into psychological resources. Corporations have hired chief health officers invested in wellness services. In 2020, the mindfulness app Headspace saw a 500% increase in corporate subscription requests. Alongside these efforts, a worldwide conversation has grown around self-care. Anything pursued for the sake of one's own wellness, including practicing yoga, binging Ted Lasso, and old-fashioned napping. Self-care has been popular for decades, but during the pandemic, it has gained a new cachet. But self-care alone won't fulfill a person's psychological needs as we rebound from the pandemic. After many months in relative isolation, we must reclaim connection and meaning. That comes not just from caring for ourselves, but also 
from caring for one another. Though self-care soothes, it can be too individualistic to help with loneliness. Me time is great, truly, but human flourishing is typically played out in the playing field of life, out there with everyone else. Another approach, one that has been shown in years of research to bolster one's sense of self, is to show up for others. In one of many studies, people were randomly assigned to spend money on either themselves or someone else, and then were asked how much they agreed with statements such as, my life has a clear sense of purpose. Those who spent their money on others reported feeling greater meaning, self-worth, and connection. The punchline is simple. Giving boosts meaning in good times and might be a salve against languishing in tough ones. Here's the problem. Many people don't seem to get this. Individuals wrongly predict that spending time, money, and energy on themselves will make them more fulfilled than spending those resources on others. When they act on these illusions, ironically, they can deepen loneliness and languishing. Do you see how the dynamics of what the author goes on to describe as care of others as opposed to self-care are exemplified in this morning's lesson from Ruth and how the thrust of grace is still just as relevant as ever, how Ruth has something to teach all of us in 2021 that the Atlantic is only just figuring out. But notice that scripture not only grasped these truths at the deepest level. Ruth actually goes a few steps further. When we find, what we find is a simple biblical principle. And it runs throughout the entire Bible. It goes like this. When you take care of others, God takes care of you. When you take care of others, God takes care of you. And even more than that, in the way that Ruth's concern seems to be entirely resting upon the needs of her mother-in-law, Naomi, so too we discover in the greater biblical narrative that God gives up his entire life for the sake of our salvation. In this morning's story, you and I are Naomi, and Jesus comes to us as Ruth, saying, do not press me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you die, I will die. <clears throat> now, I didn't tell you the end of Loretta's story. 
But here's what happened. In that meeting, I asked her how much longer was left on her three-year sentence. And she said, who knows? That all happened 20 years ago. I'm just here to plan my funeral so that one day my kids won't have to. God takes care of those who care for others. Amen.